This episode is a part of a special series devoted to a new edited book titled Social and Emotional Learning in Physical Education, Applications in School and Community Settings. Published by Jones and Bartlett Learning in cooperation with Shape America, the book is edited by Dr. Paul Wright of Northern Illinois University and Dr. Kevin Richards of the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. Uh, it's available for fall 2021 instruction. The text will integrate well into physical education teacher education coursework, and it's a great resource for teachers looking to increase the focus on social and emotional learning in their classes. This special series is sponsored by the Physical Activity and Life Skills Group in the Department of Kinesiology and Physical Education at Northern Illinois University. Hey, Risto here, George Mason University. I'm joined today by Dr. Brian Culp. He is the Assistant Chair of the Department of Health Promotion and Physical Education and a Professor of Health and Physical Education at Kennesaw State University. Uh, and he is a co-author on the chapter Social Justice and SEL, Case Examples of Promising Practices in this upcoming SEL book coming out on July 1st. Brian, thank you so much for coming on. Hey, thank you so much for having me Me again. I'm glad to be here. Um, Aristo, again, congratulations. We talked a little bit off of the podcast about your recent fellow's designation by Shape America, which I think is well-deserved for the type of scholarship that you have been doing and will continue to do. Thank you. Um, I also want to sort of acknowledge, um, also want to acknowledge, excuse me, Drs. Jim Ressler and Dylan Landy, as well as Jeff Brainbridge, um, as each of us sort of uh, contributed to this particular chapter that we have for the book. Um, I thought it was a rewarding process. I think we all sort of came away with it in terms of something that we thought was memorable. And as you can probably appreciate, it's not easy to get ideas on the same page when you work with multiple individuals. So, um, again, I wanted to just give a shout-out to my co-authors, and in particular Jim, because Jim was really a, a great spearhead for sort of getting us all on the same ideas in regards to, um, you know, the yeah. chapter. Appreciate it. Yeah. And uh, Jim and Dylan uh, wrote a chapter or separate chapters for our book. So when I was reading your chapter, I saw little flavors of their writing style. And I was like, "Ooh, I bet Dylan wrote this piece or I bet, you know, mm -hmm. Jim was in, you know, had his hand in here. So uh, I guess it's good when you have a, uh, a writing style that kind of comes through. Um, Absolutely. So I want to start off with this. You say that the goal of social justice and the process of social justice, uh, there's, there's two parts there. So can you talk to me about the distinction between these two and why it's even important to have a distinction between the two? Sure. So people who will be reading the book will see um, that we decided to expand on Leanne Bell's description of social justice that presents it as both the goal and the process because we thought it, it presented a clear, sustainable vision for equity. Um, as we know, one of the goal, the goal of me, social justice is full and equitable participation of people from all social identity groups in a society that's mutually shaped to meet their needs. Um, for us in physical education, um, this is, it, it, it's one of those things that for us it appears pretty straightforward for those of us who do this type of work. Um, everyone, regardless of the demographics, everyone, regardless of background, um, social class, should be able to fully participate in health and physical education. When we think about social justice as a process, um, it means that we should be aiming to be democratic, um, participatory, inclusive, respectful of human diversity, and also collaborative. 
And when we also think about this idea of social justice as a process, the reason why it's important is because it's a continuing process. It's never ending. Mm -hmm. um, it, it emphasizes agency and identity as a collective concern. Um, we understand that we're working toward an ultimate goal uh, where people have fair distributions of resources to help sustain physical and psychological safety um, because we want everyone in our classes and the teachers who teach uh, those students to reach their full potential. Yeah. So yeah. Well, one of the things that you wrote about is how social justice education engages teachers and students in topics that might be uncomfortable. And, and I want to personally thank you for, for your support of my teaching uh, as I've embarked this last semester on teaching sociocultural class um, in physical education for the first time. And you and I have had some conversations via email and you've shared some really good resources because I've had those uncomfortable conversations. And when I get pushed back in those classes, I, I kind of like falter and I'm like trying to figure out what to do uh, because it is an uncomfortable thing. It's, it's tough to talk about things that are uncomfortable, but it's also important to do this. But can you talk about how this type of engagement actually leads to growth? Yeah, I, I think the thing to sort of keep in mind is that our job as educators is not to necessarily stress at students what's always right and what's always wrong. I mean, for us as teachers, we have to work our own biases and backgrounds. And I think what we need to also focus on is how to take action and overcome these, these barriers to make sure that each child has a safe and encouraging environment for them to be able to participate in schools. Um, you know, in pursuing the, these aims and when we're talking about the growth perspective of it, we have to recognize, as you, you just mentioned, that our conversation and exchanges with students are not going to necessarily be easy. So we, when we think about setting the foundation for growth, I think when we get into our conversations with students, we want to clearly state the intentions of the conversation. We want to use the word we, right, mm -hmm. which is um, something that I observe with teachers and I, I try to encourage them to do this a little bit more, the word of we, so that we're inclusive and communicating to all that this is a group effort. I think it's also important for us to talk about the balances of creating trusting spaces for people to be heard while allowing for um, intentional listening and making mistakes. And in those tough discussions, what we need to be focusing on is asking the group what's important for them in that particular moment. Sometimes what happens is that we, we want to go six months after we have a situation that arise and think about where those students may be in six months. And really the answer to the question is what are we trying to accomplish in that particular moment? Um, I think some other things when we talk about setting the foundation for growth, just a couple other things, is I think ground rules are important when we have people having conversations. Um, we want to make sure that conversations don't want to get derailed. A lot of times we have great things that happen in classes, but you, you as you probably can appreciate, you have um, people who tend to talk more than other folks. Uh -huh. um, so we want to, to get situations and a consensus with a group as far as rules. And then I think um, two other things. I mean, I think we need to meet people where they are. Um, this has been talked about um, a lot in some of the discussions I've had this past year. I think a lot of times we, we have a idea of utopia. And what we don't recognize is that 
our students, for lack of a better word, are not necessarily coming in with some of the same mindsets that we have that we have been um, trained or have been exposed to. And then I think last, I mean, you know, this is pretty simple. You know, we got to do our prep work, and we need to be available and aware to look at current events in society. Yeah. So I, I guess it's for, for a listener or for a college professor, it's, it's easy to picture what this looks like in a college class. We meet Monday, Wednesday, 10 to 11.15. We read some articles. We have these deep, rich discussions. But what does this look like practically in a PE setting? Because it's, it's important, obviously, but sometimes these thoughtful discussions are a little bit harder to facilitate in a traditional secondary PE classroom, for example. That's a great question. So one of the things I think teachers can do first is no students, no environment. Um, sort of a, a, an addition to what I, what I sort of left with the last question is that you have to be aware of current issues. Um, I think we also, when we're walking into classrooms, we have to be aware of what other teachers may be exposing students to as well. Um, physical education teachers are notorious for not necessarily having open lines of communication with other um, teachers and educators, not just in the school, but in their district to sort of see if some of these issues are occurring. And if they are occurring, then what do those different issues look like in a particular area? I think one piece in terms of things that I've seen before in classes in terms of practical things, um, opportunities for students to be able to um, post how they're feeling on a physical board Mm. Um, we, we do know that some students use tech, well, excuse me, some teachers use technology and um, they may want to interact with, with students do there, but the physical environment, walking into a classroom and a student having an opportunity to write how they feel on the board or write how they feel on a card anonymously, um, perhaps putting those cards and mixing them up and then posting those particular cards on the board or having a discussion about those things in class during the course of a unit and asking students how they feel about a particular topic without necessarily putting students on the spot. Um, I think you want to also make sure that when students are bringing news, because we recognize that we get news through all different types of formats now, social media, you know, uh, we're going to add just, just historic, like traditional watching television news, but what we also have to recognize is that just because students are bringing in news or information doesn't necessarily mean it's accurate. Mm -hmm. I mean, we're unfortunately in a disinformation society, and I think part of our job is to make sure that we discern fact from opinion and be able to provide our own point of view without shifting um, ideas for the classroom. Um, I think one other thing that we can do in terms of if a teacher was saying, well, what can I do tomorrow? I think you have to look at what materials you have in the classroom because, you know, we can look at a physical curriculum and we can say to ourselves, hey, I'm going to add in more topics related to social justice. But what we don't necessarily think about is the postings that we have, who's coming to the class, who's visiting our classroom, you know, and taking advantage of guest teachers or guest speakers. Are we taking advantage and using examples that um, encompass ethnicity, things like religion, language, gender, ability, sexual orientation, socioeconomic status in a non-stereotypical manner when mm -hmm. we're presenting these different opportunities for students in classes. Yeah, yeah. And, and you brought up uh, social media there, and 
one of in the misinformation aspect of it my uh, one of my students dan caldwell he uh he uses this phrase social misleading you um mm-hmm. so it's uh and speaking of social media i lurked on a twitter chat thanks to justin uh and on that on that uh twitter chat there was a there's a quote that somebody posted it was a it was an edi i, I illinois afer chat um, and mm-hmm. there was a quote by Maya Angelou uh, that I haven't seen before, but it was, do the best you can until you know better. Then when you know better, do better. And I, and I thought, you know, it links to this way that you wrote this chapter. And it made it so clear that social justice education isn't about being right or wrong. It's about thinking. It's about working on this content and coming to a conclusion based on based on these things. So can you kind of elaborate on that idea? Absolutely. And I, and, um, I, I think one thing that sort of we keep in mind is that, yes, I mean, there, there are situations that professionally we're going to see that exist that are wrong. And those are things such as hate crimes, obviously, discriminations, racisms. Um, when we hear or see disparaging remarks or slurs in class, obviously all of those things are wrong and inappropriate. The question is, is how do we communicate how wrong that is to students so that they understand for themselves why it's wrong? Mm-hmm. Um, it's easy for us to, to tell students and other people that we work with that something's wrong, but what ends up happening a lot of times is that we end up doing a lot of correction, and we don't take the time to actually educate someone about why, right? So I think one in this these particular pieces – we need to think about critical thinking, right? And not just thinking about our viewpoint and how we look at an equity, but how does someone in the secondary school context look at what we're saying to them, right? Because we recognize the fact that peers do have a, an incredible amount of influence on how other peers view things such as discrimination and racism. Um, and I think at the end of the day, what we want students to sort of come away with when we're thinking about this, this avenue about right or wrong is you can disagree with somebody's values, you can disagree with somebody's outlook, but you, we have to agree that everybody has rights. Mm-hmm. And just because you don't agree with someone's rights doesn't mean that you get to infringe upon that person and control that person because the personal growth that we want to see with students happens when they're not just – correct it but they're allowed to participate in critical thinking yeah yeah and i think that critical media literacy is there too and understanding where and what viewpoints are are coming in and and i think very early on when i started dealing with this i would i would label things i would say like no like the way you're saying that is can be construed as very racist and as soon as i say that to somebody they're like whoa you're calling me a racist and then it just like takes uh, the wrong turn um so for example one of our one of our assigned readings was uh the mitchell article that you sent from 1922 uh to mm-hmm. me that talks about eugenics and mm-hmm. i think what uh, some of the students did is they skipped over the first page and they didn't realize that it was written in 1922 and so they took certain things from that reading like uh i think of something like sport uh your environment is more important than heredity and what mitchell's talking about is like race 
they were thinking about it of heredity as in like, hey, uh, my mom is a Division One athlete and my dad's a Division One athlete, so therefore I'm more likely to be a, you know, physically gifted in sports. And so pushing that conversation, I could do it in two ways. I could do it very abruptly and being like, hey, have you looked at the date and did you read the whole article because a lot of this stuff is really bad in there. Uh, or I can say, hey, look at the date, look at the context. What do you think heredity means in this context? Let's have a conversation, you know, continuous that. And they start thinking about it themselves instead of, you know, directing them, telling them what is right or wrong. Right. Uh, yeah. And I, I like the fact that you, you use that. And I, I ran into that article probably 10 years ago and I always use it in class. Because it, it's just, as you can probably appreciate, it has so many different layers to it. So mm -hmm. I've had students do the exact same things your students did, which was not even look at the date. And what I have done now with certain parts of that article is basically talk about the idea of stereotyping. And generally what I get from my students is, well, Dr. Culp, that's not really happening anymore. And then what we do is we go to social media and we point out some of the ways why these stereotypes are still rampant among certain groups and when you think about that that's a hundred years ago yeah and yeah. if people essentially it, it's it's about the who's has the message yeah. and if you can get people to believe your message you never have to critically think about trying to correct what's wrong and and i think it's a really powerful thing that that many of my students usually walk away from it's like wow i can really say something and drive the experience of students in my class based on things that are not true. Yeah, absolutely. So what about reflection? What, what do you feel like the role of reflection is in this social justice process in general? Oh gosh, um, I, I tell people, um, the, the one misnomer I think is interesting is that there are a fair amount of people who do not want to touch social justice issues because they think they have to be perfect all of the time. And I tell folks that I reflect on things related to justice on a daily basis, sometimes on an hourly basis, depending on the issue, and because I recognize the fact that self-reflection is an important part, I think, of what sort of defines us as human beings. Um, I think when it comes to social justice, it's important for uh, the teachers and students to reflect on their experiences. And... I think one thing about social justice education that is unique, and I think we're seeing this now, is that that reflection has to be looked at in relation to power, control, and who may have authority in a particular situation. Um, power, as we know, is a natural part of our world and, and how our communities are working and how it works politically and economically. Um, if we're trying to control power, trying to look at it, then we want things to be distributed more equally. Um, generally, I think that there's a power dynamic that happens between teachers and students. In fact, it's not even generally. There is a power dynamic that happens with teachers and students. And in reflecting on that particular power dynamic, when we think about the situation, when we think about the context, I think it's helpful for teachers to be self-reflective, but also open up opportunities for students to be able to do that as well. But also, you know, and I, I'm a big proponent of doing role play in classrooms as it's appropriate because I think when you shift it, particularly when we think about activities that we do from a sport perspective, 
for instance, there may be some sports that, or some activities that we have certain students in the class that are really good at. And I think sometimes what we need to do is when we change to another activity is flip it and ask people who are not, who don't perceive themselves to be very good at an activity, um, how would you feel if you were in an activity that you were highly successful in? And then conversely, people who are sort of in power, who feel great about an activity, how would you feel if you weren't good at this particular type of activity? Mm -hmm. So I think reflection is a real big piece to it. I think we can do a lot of reflective related activities as it relates to physical education. And, you know, I, I think it sets a really good foundation for conversations that we want to have in the future. Yeah. And in the chapter, you included case studies. Obviously, it's also in the title of your chapter, but you you had some really great examples. I think one of the ones that clicked with me the most was uh, the, the last one of the, of the minefield, a simple example of how you ex- explain it and people can read it in the book. But uh, can you talk about those examples in general or the case studies? Why was it important for you to highlight those? Yeah, I can talk about them in general. I mean, the, the mindful one that you're speaking of now, that, I, we, we, can, we can put that totally on Jeff. That was one of the, the ones that we definitely wanted to highlight in terms of case studies. But I think, for, first of all, the readers should know that each one of those case studies are based on true stories. They're mm-hmm. based on personal experiences. Um, we, you know, there are certain things that we obviously had to, to leave out to protect the innocent, so to speak. But what you'll see is examples of professionals who have really great intent. Like the one I wrote about was, you know, comparing to one teacher to another teacher and how does a culturally relevant teacher who's focused on social justice look as opposed to someone who's doing the bare minimum, right? Mm-hmm. And we tend to find that a lot of times, I think teachers have great intent. But what often happens is that they do the bare minimum and it turns into a mockery of the types of activities that we should be infusing in classrooms and how we should be strategizing for classrooms. And quite frankly, I think we teach to the time that we have in physical education, so to speak. So some people, for instance, will go, well, I need to infuse diversity, equity, and inclusion in my classrooms, but I only have 45 minutes, so how do I do it? Well, let me bring in music and let me have students choose the music. And it's like, that's not diversity, equity, and inclusion. That's mm-hmm. just giving students a little bit of choice. Mm-hmm. But you're not really expanding on how the power dynamic exists and how equity in these particular contexts um, should be upheld in classes. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So they, they're all, I don't want to spoil too much of the case studies, but they're all from personal experiences of things that we've been a part of as teachers or things that we've seen as an observing teacher. Yeah. And I think that there's a good mix of ones that could be implemented by the reader and things that push you to kind of self-reflect and think, "Ooh, have I been doing that style or how, how would I react in that situation? Uh, so speaking of going off of those practical examples, what are some things you'd want to see in a classroom where uh, in a physical education setting where a teacher is pursuing social justice education and uh, social emotional learning? You know, I in what I've seen just as a, a basic foundation is authenticity. I think students know when you're fake and you're just trying to, to add something to um, use students, for lack of a better word, as just a checkbox. 
I think authenticity is a very important thing. I think an understanding of structural inequalities, um, understanding the role that our social identities play in each of the things that we, in terms of how we value um, certain things in classrooms, in terms of how we express it, in terms of how we teach skills, in terms of how we allow for students to express their experiences, I think that's important as well. I would also say to the creation of a classroom climate, and much has been discussed with this over the past few years, cultural humility, I think cultural relevance, I think you're going to need, teachers are going to have to have a supportive school administration and district, and also I think of most importance, um, community li liaisons. I think teachers have to work in order to find people in the community that have strengths that they don't have, mm -hmm. right? So I think that if, we, if you start with that with a basic foundation of a classroom, I, th I think you're doing pretty well in terms of SEL, the social justice. Yeah, and, and there's so many resources there too. If you are looking into getting into this or you are seeing your community change around you or your school change around you of changing from predominantly white school 10 years ago to a very diverse school now. And so how are you uh, addressing uh, diverse student needs? And there's a couple uh, book clubs that we've done um, on this podcast. One um, one was on uh, why are all the black uh, kids sitting together in the cafeteria? And uh, we talk about that with Clancy Seymour and one of his students. Uh, and then we have another one coming up here uh, that'll launch at the end of May. Um, Christopher Emden's book on for white folks who teach in the hood. And he talks about this... Um, Pentecostal pedagogy of this idea of um, how uh, in predominantly African-American communities there are these African-American or black churches that there's a type of teaching, there's a type of call and response, there's a type of cadence that happens that's much different than what a traditional teacher would teach. And so I thought it was interesting how you brought up this idea of connecting to a community member who has a social capital or who has skills or something that that you just don't and if you can go in and find that community member bring them in or use them as a you know a person to kind of ask uh questions of of would this work or how would they how would you see this being perceived i think there's just so much there that that could uh, that could help yes so let me ask you this kind of more broader question. If we zoom out and we look at education as a whole, obviously, um, you know, race has been brought to the forefront of a lot of our conversations. It's in our university conversations. It's in our school conversations. Uh, and obviously it should have been way more present way, way sooner, but we've been talking about this for a long time. And, um, so what role do you see education playing in enabling these issues of um, kind of this conversation about race and what is the role of education in trying to, you know, s stop hate crimes, stop uh, racism, stop, you know, uh, you know, social injustice from continuing to occur? Great question. I, I and, when, and when you when you pose it, I. I I thought about this for a little bit. So historically, and has education to me has been 
looked at as bringing social change to individuals and communities in this really large fashion. I think that was sort of the part of the original purpose of education, um, where you have teachers who were situated and um, sort of positioned as agents of change. Um, you have education itself, whether that's curriculum, whether that's the lesson, whether that's the lived experience is supposed to act as a stimulus. And then you have the students who are the recipients of that knowledge, and then they're taking that knowledge, and they're supposed to go change. I think that was the traditional model of what education was supposed to be envisioned at. Um, when we have it working well, when you have good education systems, people, I still feel, are aware of their rights and their civic duties. Um, I think some of the shift that we've seen in the past few decades is that that's not taking place, um, largely because, as I've talked and other scholars have discussed this before, just in education as a whole, it's just been so standardized and corporatized to the point that I think education teaches passive behaviors. Mm -hmm. We're not teaching active learners. We're, we're sort of creating these class dynamics in schools where you have, like, the people who get the worksheets and they just listen versus yeah. certain school districts and certain school situations are set up where you have people who are critical thinkers and learners. And there used to be a time in, in our society where all that was mixed in. You had people there and they were critically thinking and learning. So I think that education has to get back to active engagement. I think we need to active challenging of people. I, I think physical education in particular has to be more than what it has in the past. I think, um, and, you know, and I'm not obviously the first one to discuss this, but I think we've had taken a very corporate corporate situation and taken and put it into physical education, and we're not really teaching people aspects about how what we teach in physical education helps them as they go out into the communities and get get older, right? So. I would probably tell tell you just from that perspective, I think the role of education is to create active people who are engaged in society and are able to solve problems. And I think that we've gotten away from that because we have a large money piece that has infiltrated education. So, mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. And it seems like these uh, activist approaches and critical inquiry and critical media literacy and things like that, creativity are, are things that we should be focusing on a lot more. Um, so let me yeah. end the conversation with this. Uh, it's a question I've asked from everybody that's come on, uh, and you can take this wherever you want. Why SEL and why social justice education? Great question, and I would tell anyone who's ever asked that question before, I've started pitching it back to them to basically say to them, why not? So that's the question. Why not SEL and social justice? I personally think that people who don't think this is necessary, uh, I just think they don't like accountability. And I think um, social-emotional learning and social justice to a larger extent, it puts an onus on people to be accountable for their actions. And I think I, can, I could point, I could spend the next 30 minutes talking, thinking about several examples in society that, has, that we are seeing right now with people who are supposed to be in leadership positions who just don't like accountability. And the way for them to say it is to say, is to say hey, we don't need to have social justice perspectives. I mean, we're seeing this right now in state legislations um, that are wanting to not talk about um, structural inequalities, um, institutional racism, um, race, uh, ethnicity, 
um, gender, sexuality, they're creating laws to sort of circumvent those different types of discussions. I just think there are certain principles that need to exist in order to promote an equitable society. And I think that SEL and social justice provides a great template for our house to go about solving these different problems that we have in our community. Yeah, absolutely. And I think when I asked that question, I was like, I wonder if he's going to say why not? Because that's a good answer, <laughs> good answer to that. And there, there we have it. Uh, Brian, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, really appreciate uh, your wisdom and, and your chapter. I think it's a, it's a great addition to the book. Uh, which is coming out July 1st, uh, Jones and Bartlett. Uh, you can find more information uh, through Shape America because it's a Shape America publication as well, and there's a ton of good stuff in this chapter. So uh, thanks for coming on. Yes, it's always a pleasure. I would strongly consider picking up the book just from me looking at not just our chapter, but some of the other chapters are going to be in the book. I think it's going to be a great resource for physical education teachers as we're trying to navigate a host of challenges that we have right now in our society. So, again, always a pleasure, and I appreciate it. Thanks, Brian. And I got some editing to do to uh, cut out these uh, sawing sounds in the construction yard next to my recording studio, which is my home. So, <laughs> it, it is amazing because I didn't hear anything. I, I w we had somebody here, um, I think, knock on my door briefly, and then buzz, and then I pretty much just was like, "Get away!" So. Yeah. We'll, we'll hey, see. you know how to do it, man. We'll, we'll see. I guess the listeners will find out if, if I've done a good job or not. So, thanks, well, you're, you're doing a, you're doing great work. And, again, I appreciate you having me on. Okay? Yep.